Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Maison Francaise, Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows in Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Professor of French and Professor of Philosophy Suleiman Bashudiyanya's book, Open to Reason, Muslim Philosophers in Conversation with the Western Tradition. First, we'll hear Suleiman Bashir speaking about his book at the panel, which took place at the Maison Française, and then we'll hear Gustav M. Byrne, Professor of Philosophy at Columbia, Christia Mercer speaking about Suleiman Bashir's book at the panel. Thank you very much, Pierre. Thank you for everything. Thank you for your friendship. And you are right saying that it goes way, way back, more than 40 years, I must say. Um, my words would be primarily words of, of thanks. I first, obviously, thank you all for, uh, for coming uh, um, this evening and from, for uh, feeling this Maison Francaise with your, with your support and your, and your friendship. Um, this book owes also much to, to friends who have contributed to the jacket of this book. Let me comment on the jacket of this book and uh, 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 thank people. First of all, uh, I owe this picture on top of the jacket to my good friend Kader Atia. Those of you who are familiar with the artistic scene in France know that Kader Atia is right now one of the greatest uh, uh, French, French Algerian uh, artists, uh, French artists, and he is also French and Algerian. And this is called Black uh, uh, Cube, and I just fell in love with this image when uh, I was asked by Columbia University Press to select something, and I wrote to Kader and he said, of course, it is all yours, and uh, I wanted to, to, to say that. Uh, Kader's work, he has one wonderful work at the MoMA, or the Met, MoMA. MoMA, if you have a chance to, to, to see his, uh, his work. Still on the jacket, I owe this picture, which is uh, making me look uh, young, uh, to Charlotte Force. I want to thank Abimo uh, Pectore uh, uh, Charlotte, uh, who is our own uh, undergraduate here at Columbia. Uh, um, majoring in, in history, and who is also the daughter of Pierre. <laughs> and that was also a wonderful gift that Charlotte uh, uh, had for me for this, uh, for this jacket. Uh, I have also wonderful blurbs still on the jacket from uh, 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 friends and, uh, and that I have loved working with. Charles Taylor, uh, Akil, Akil Bilgrami, uh, Karl Ernst, and uh, Marcia Hermansen, whom I know way back when we were both uh, uh, teaching at, um, in Chicago a few years ago before the friendship of Pierre and the friendship of many other colleagues here brought me to, brought me to Columbia from, uh, from Chicago and Northwestern University. Uh, and I thank, of course, IRCPL, because IRCPL uh, uh, um, and uh, Kathy were really uh, uh, very um, influential in having this published by Columbia University Press. I should mention also our colleague uh, uh, Karen Barkley, who is now uh, in, in, in Berkeley, 
and uh, uh, Mamadou Diouf, whom using a, a phrase by Senghor and Emi Césaire, I will call my more than brother. Uh, um, and I want to thank Columbia University Press, not only for publishing this, but for the title. Actually, nothing on this jacket belongs to me, even <laughs> the title. As, as you know, the original, uh, Pierre mentioned it, the French original title was Comment philosophie en Islam, meaning literally how to philosophize in Islam. And uh, uh, I'm happy with the, the title that was suggested to me uh, very forcefully uh, <laughs> by Columbia University Press. Because in our present times of both heated controversy about the Muslim religion and profound ignorance of its nature and history, that French, the French title I had, Comment Philosophie en Islam, was playing upon the idea that many would consider it a contradiction in terms to associate Islam with philosophical skepticism and uh, 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 questioning. And in that title, that original French title, I also wanted to avoid the usual academic phrase uh, uh, Islamic uh, philosophy, because actually one could ask, what is Islamic in the philosophy of Al-Farabi, for example, when he writes about the, the, the perfect state and uh, reflect along the lines of uh, uh, Plato and Aristotle in, in, in that book? Uh, um, so that would be a, a good question. So philosophizing in Islam or, or philosophy in Islam meant for me that philosophy was one single gesture that could find its meaning in different locations and uh, 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 culture. So I proposed to Columbia University Press, well, philosophizing in Islam. I believe this is not really a nice phrase in, uh, in English. Now the English title, uh, uh, open to reason Muslim philosophers in conversation with the Western tradition, keeps insisting on rationality and openness, of course, which was the original idea as well, but puts at least equal emphasis, I believe, here on the notion of conversation or dialogue as constitutive of philosophy. And this is very important for, for me in uh, this book. Now, my original problem with this title, uh, when it was proposed to, 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 to me, um, and and uh, let, me, let me just say that my, my publisher, when she sent me an email, said that uh, uh, I should definitely need to have a title that would be sexier. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but she added, for want of a better word. In the, in the, so I, I, I thought, OK, what the heck? I'm, I'm Senegalese. I speak French, so I can do sexy. <laughs> That's uh, how the, uh, the decision was uh, was made. Uh, uh, the, the, the problem still I uh, I had with the title originally was that I wanted also to avoid what uh, Edward Said has called the metaphysical lenses, saying that whenever we start thinking we have these metaphysical lenses, the West, the Orient, Islam, the rest basically. So I wanted to avoid that. So uh, I thought, OK, Muslim philosophers in conversation with the Western tradition, I don't believe that there is such a thing as a Western tradition in the first place. So what do I do with that? And then uh, I thought, OK, let's take here, because we are at Columbia, let's take our core curriculum. We do teach a core curriculum 
where we have uh, uh, many of the philosophers that I am in conversation with in, 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 in this book. And one cannot say that Ibn Tufayl, for example, the author of Hay ibn Yaqzan, is not Western. He is Spaniard. Uh, so was Averroes as well. And now, if you take them as European or Western because they were Spaniards, you cannot detach from them the rest of the tradition, Azali and Ibn Sina and all the others. So what it means is that Islamic philosophy, if you want to call it like that, or Islam in general, is absolutely internal to the so-called West. And that is one of the lessons of our core curriculum as we teach it here at Columbia University. If you take Spain, Islam did not come into Spain with waves and waves of immigrants, some of them drowning. It was actually indigenous to the land of Spain, as Spanish archaeology shows. A few years ago, I was serving on, the, on a panel for the Agahan uh, uh, um, Prize in Architecture, and we gave one prize to uh, a beautiful building, a beautiful architectural work in Spain, which was actually a museum, a museum uh, uh, really built under the ground to precisely uh, uh, manifest that notion that all the archaeological artifacts that were found and that were Islamic were actually coming out of the ground of Spain. So this is something very important in my thinking and my way of doing Western philosophy, Islamic philosophy, African philosophy. I don't believe in those adjectives, in those separation. Philosophy is philosophy, and when I think, I think together from Senghor to Leibniz or, or, or Ibn Tufail and so on, so forth. So that was one aspect of my hesitation especially given the fact that we have to be understanding, and this is one of the lessons I believe that I try to convey in my book, Re remind ourselves that what we call translatios to jurum in the study of the history of philosophy, translatios to jurum meaning the transmission slash translation of Greek philosophy into uh, European languages and European uh, uh, universities, Translatios to Jerusalem never went in a linear way from Athens to Rome and Rome Heidelberg. It made detours. It went to Cordoba, it went to Toledo, it went to Fez, it went to Kairouan, uh, uh, and it went to Timbuktu at the very heart of Africa, where actually Aristotelian logic was being taught ever uh, uh, back then in the medieval ages. We have to remember that Islamization meant also the adoption of Islamic uh, disciplines, and in particular philosophy in all those, uh, those lands. So that is really one aspect of what I wanted to do. And I'm very happy that uh, uh, friends and fellow philosophers uh, like Christian and Nabil are here because they, we have had that uh, conversation with Christian for many, many uh, years. And the first time I met Nabil, he was organizing at UPenn a conference on non-Western philosophy. And this idea that uh, philosophy uh, actually is a braid, the history of philosophy is a braid of histories, uh, what we call Western, uh, Islamic philosophy, Jewish philosophy, many different uh, 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 philosophical traditions.
Now, uh, so thank you very much, uh, Columbia University, for insisting on having a sexy title with uh, the word conversation in this. So this is a book of conversation, of dialogues that are constitutive of the tradition of philosophical questioning in Islam, as dialogue has always been constitutive of, uh, of philosophy. And these dialogues that I describe here remind us that philosophy is not the natural production of any culture or of any religion, which means that philosophy is not Greek and does not naturally speak Greek or an Indo-European language. This is actually what uh, uh, French uh, uh, Germanist and philosopher uh, Jean-Pierre Lefebvre has called Heidegger's uh, uh, ontological nationalism, to believe that there is such a thing as uh, chosen exceptional languages that are uh, uh, the embodiment of the logos, and that there is a European exceptionalism when it comes to asking the simple question, uh, why is there something rather than nothing, and why this rather than something else? I do believe that everywhere you find human beings, who can uh, stand on their feet, they have been raising those questions. And also, but also, on the other side, Islamic philosophy is not the philosophy emanating from Islam, but a conversation in which are engaged people committed to questioning and thinking freely, and who understand that such a commitment means the capacity to liberate oneself from the immediate unexamined meanings in which cultures and religions enclose us. The society of philosophers is continuously open and continuously recruiting beyond the boundaries of cultures, languages, or religions. And these dialogues that I described in, in this book were sustained yesterday with Plotinus, with Plato, or Aristotle, and they are conducted today with Nietzsche, with Bergson, and others. In particular, the dialogue between Indian poet, statesman, and thinker Muhammad Iqbal, uh, and we have discussed quite often, Kathy and I, uh, uh, Muhammad Iqbal, and French philosopher Henri Bergson, in particular, gives here its full meaning to the word conversation. This dialogue between Iqbal and Bergson is presented in my book in uh, chapter 9 under the title, The Philosophy of Movement. And it truly constitutes the heart of, uh, of my book, I believe. The reason for that being that the conversation between uh, Muhammad Iqbal and Henri Bergson, which actually also took place physically when they met uh, in, uh, in, in, in Paris, uh, uh, that conversation concerned the crucial topic of time, of change, of movement, which is at the heart of the question of philosophizing in Islam today. In his conversation with Henri Bergson's work, Muhammad Iqbal expressed both in his poetry and his prose his profound agreement with the man he said was the very first modern philosopher to truly understand the nature of time and of life as change and innovation. And I use that word because it is kind of uh, 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 forbidden word in uh, certain circles of the Islamic world. To grasp it in itself in an intuitive manner, to grasp time in itself, uh, not as the specialized and serial notion that we usually express when we speak of it, 
but as a continuous and indivisible duration makes us, for uh, Iqbal, understand the word as creative evolution, that we, as humans, have the responsibility of accompanying and achieving. And that cosmology of emergence, which is uh, uh, very present in what I tried to do in this book, that cosmology of emergence, Iqbal stated, is the cosmology of the Quran, with which the word Islam needs to re-identify itself with. That was the message of, of Iqbal, who uh, said famously that he was not speaking for the people of his own time, but for uh, the Muslims of the future, I believe that after 1938, we might start considering ourselves to be his uh, interlocutors, the people he was talking about. And this idea of reconnecting again for Islam with its own principle of movement and its spirit of pluralism and openness is very much about understanding that Islam is, was not born on 9-11-2001, but is a long intellectual and spiritual tradition that Muslims in the first place should know, but also other people. And I try to do that in this book. Thank you very much. Now, we'll hear Gustav M. Byrne Professor of Philosophy, Christian Mercer, speaking about Suleiman Bashir's book at the panel. Uh, given what Bashir just said about time, I assume that I can go a little bit over 10 minutes if I can just <laughs> No, I'm, I'm truly honored to be on a panel celebrating my colleague and friend um, for his most recent book. It's a lovely, the book itself is a lovely expression of Bashir's virtues. And actually what I most admire about him, it's erudite, it's thoughtful, it's concise. <laughs> um, and it's also, I mean, one of the things that, that struck me in reading through it the first time is that there's just these delightful moments when you kind of can't quite imagine that something so clever could happen that at least I didn't, I knew so very little about. So it's like talking to you, Bashir. There's always <laughs> these, these really delightful moments. Now, Bashir and I, as he mentioned, have joined forces over the past couple of several years, actually. We're both devoted to rethinking and actually offering a pretty radical rethinking of the history of philosophy and, in a sense, what philosophers take philosophy to be. What is Western philosophy? What does it mean to get philosophy right? And really what Bashir just said captures exactly the many difficulties with coming up with any kind of category of Western, non-Western, even African, for that matter, philosophy, right? That these are always categories that are porous. These, every single tradition is in itself a constant movement and in a constant kind of reimagining of itself. So with, with these kind of issues about what is philosophy and rethinking philosophy, given my interest, um, I want to stand back a little bit. Again, so you should know that Bashir and I, Bashir and I are, he's joined me. There's a book series that some of us are doing called Oxford New Histories of Philosophy. And the whole point of the book series is to make prominent works that have been very important in history philosophy in a, a certain social context, but got left out of the canon. So for, for example, the first book that was published is on 20th century Mexican philosophy. A number of women's, women's texts are going to be uh, come out, coming out soon. My colleague, Bob Goody-Williams, is doing a, a, an edition, or actually a monograph, on Martin Delaney, a 19th century um, um, a black man who wrote, a very, wrote very important political works. But again, this, this material has just been left out of 
our discussion of what philosophy is and should be. So there's a lot of really exciting work, work being done, and Bashir is keeping me honest, and many of us honest in all of this. So, so at first glance, uh, Open to Reason looks like um, a book that's about the history of philosophy in the Muslim world. That's what it looks like. But as the English title suggests, and as Bashir just discussed, it's also a book, in some sense, in conversation with the so-called Western tradition. And for me, uh, given my interest, this is the, perhaps the most profound contribution that I've seen recently, that is his book, to what it would be like to reimagine that tradition. So to understand its profundity, let me tell you something um, let me remind you, you probably know something about this. You know probably about the first part of my story, but you don't know something, you don't know very much probably about a part of it. I mean, just to explain what I'm doing now, I'm, I'm writing a book called um, Feeling the Way to Truth, Women, Reason, and the Devel Development of Modern Philosophy. I have a paper out showing that some of the major, what are supposed to be major insights and, and uh, new ideas in Descartes' meditations that they're actually in Teresa Avila and in a tradition that women wrote and were involved in. So there's a way of reconsidering not just the boundary between um, late medieval and modern philosophy, but also what counts as philosophy. So as you probably all know, you know um, the, the assumption is that what philosophy is is itself Western, and the history of Western philosophy is a string, a string of beads of great systems. You know, name a great philosopher, Plato, Aristotle. If you think of anyone at all in, in the medieval world, you think of Aquinas, maybe Scotus, and so on. And all of this is just um, preparation for the great Descartes, who's supposed to be the, the father of modern philosophy, and who then himself generated the great rationalist philosophers in the 17th century, who then, and kind of in horror to that, then there's the British empiricists and so on. Now, now um, in fact, as Kuno Fischer, so you've never heard of Kuno Fischer probably, that's okay, very important German philosopher in the later part of the um, 19th century, very, very famous um, professor. He wrote a whole series of books on the history of Western philosophy, and he begins with Descartes. And basically he says that Descartes made, and I quote, a fundamental and complete motivation. Uh, Fisher's works were translated into English and were very, very popular in Oxford and Cambridge, for example, in the late, in the late 19th century. So we have, this, we have this history philosophy that's supposed to then sort of deposit us at the Enlightenment period. And what is the Enlightenment period supposed to be? It's supposed to be a period when people first start thinking about dignity and equality and all these kinds of things, right? So the history of philosophy, the history of progress in philosophy is what? The string of, as my, you know, as my students and I sometimes say, old white dudes, right? Um, and it's just like the string of beads, like these great systems. So one of the things that I think is so important, again, about Bashir's book is he asks us to kind of reconsider, reconsider this tradition. Now, for me, one of the really important questions that I've been raising and sort of thinking, well, how, does it, how did it come to pass that this tradition became so embedded. And I started researching around, and one of the things I was really struck, struck to discover is that the answer to the question, how did it become invented, is actually really simple. It began with post-Kantian philosophers, in particular Hegel and Schopenhauer, who basically told a story about the history of philosophy that, guess what, had them as a telos. 
him as the end, right? So everything that had been done before, before Hegel, or before Schopenhauer, were leading up to their insights. So for example, there's lots of quotations I could give. I, I, due to time, I can't. But this is just a really amazing little, little example of how, what you find in Hegel. Hegel writes, Germanic philosophy, i.e. modern philosophy, begins with Descartes. I just like get, wrap your head around that, right? Okay, um, uh, Schopenhauer says basically the same thing. And so Hegel and Schopenhauer did this. There was a whole conversation about this. Kuno Fischer then codified this. And then you have people like Ernst Cassier, if you don't know, some, a lot of people know something about Cassier. He was a really great philosopher, a really, really fine historian in a way. But he was a, he's a person who wrote in the, he was German in the early part of the 20th century, but he wrote a whole account of how the great philosophy is the philosophy of systems. And he says that after Descartes, that Descartes, the, the Cartesian spirit, Geist, permeated the 17th century. So all you need to do, he said, to study the history of philosophy after Descartes was to study the great systems. You could ignore everything else. But this idea of philosophy as a string of great systems ignores the astonishing richness of the period. All you have to do is kind of start smelling around the edges, and you discover you know, wonderful and important and very progressive, by the way, um, philosophical contributions. Now, in case you think, well, look, come on, come on you know, this is surely been rethought a little bit. One of my favorite examples of how bad things still are is that um, the Norton, the, so Norton published, there was a big introduction to philosophy that was published only three years ago. It was it's edited by really, really prominent philosophers who actually went out and asked people, well, what kind of introduction do you want to philosophy? It has 1,128 pages. And what it does, it takes the traditional philosophical problems, mind-body problem, for example, problem about political equality. It starts with Plato or Aristotle and tracks it through all of the great systems. Now, in its over a 1,000 pages, it does not mention a single Jewish thinker, a single Islamic thinker, or a single woman prior to the mid-20th century, even though um, as Bashir and many people in this room know, um, very, very important um, Islamic thinkers in medieval Europe changed the conversation about topics. The women I've been working on changed the conversation about topics. So this is kind of how bad things are. So the standard story goes really, really deep, right? And it's a, it's a really good question as to how you disrupt that, how you interfere with that. One of the strategies has been to think about genre. So my, my, my new work is on the genre of meditations. And one of the things that people, women felt comfortable writing about spiritual meditations. It, was, it also has deep roots in the Islamic tradition. So genre is one way to go. Another way to go is just sort of pick, find systems that people have, you know, pretty great systems that people have ignored for whatever reason. Again, I'm working on a woman called Anne Conway, the 17th century Platonist in England. Very, very incredible woman. And get this, I'm kind of inserting things here, so I'm going to go over time. But Conway believes that all human beings are equal. That, and she says, Jews, Christians, and Turks, i.e. Muslims, are capable of grasping the truth. And she is committed to the idea that proper education will make everyone perfect. And she's writing in the 1660s, by the way. Okay, 
so let's get back to, enough about me, now let's talk about more about this year. Let's get back to open to reason. Now the reason I think it's a model of how to rethink, get around to rethinking what philosophy is, is that it does, it's, you know, roughly speaking, kind of generally speaking, what it does is this. It zooms in with Bashir's typical incredible clarity. Every single chapter has a, a, a new question. Every single chapter talks about in a very serious philosophical thinker and the way he tries to answer that question. And every single chapter, or almost every, every chapter, uses a different kind of genre, a different way, as it were, of expressing um, an argument, how to put it, in, uh, a different way of offering the reader of the text that's being described in Bashir's book a, a different way of coming to certain fundamental truths. So n none of these chapters is really about, it's not like none of them is, is an outline of a system. It's rather a text that helps people come to an understanding of the answer to a question. Now, what are these questions? These questions are questions that any philosopher anywhere in the world might be interested in. Um, does religion need philosophy? What are the implications of the Arabic language becoming philosophical as it receives translations from Greek texts? This is enormously important, right? Like the people I work on, early modern philosophy. By the way, I love systems up to a point. I worked on Leibniz for about 15 years. I talk about a system. But one of the things that people haven't paid enough, enough attention to is that really thoughtful philosophers are always in conversation with major figures in the history of philosophy. They take what they want, they leave the rest, and they construct their answers to questions by that means. So um, Bashir's book very, very nicely uh, accounts for that. One, another question, can religion coexist with philosophical rationalism? Is mysticism in contradiction with rationalism? What does it mean to be human? Every single one of these texts, in some ways, confronts that fundamental question. In fact, I love the way there's an account of, of someone's answer to that question on page 24, where Bashir says, the meaning given to human spirits voyage towards the truth. So this person is interested, as are my medieval meditative women, interested in the, in the person's voyage, and it's always a struggle to the truth. So, and let me just pick out very briefly my two favorite examples from the book, and I would love to give you more because but there's not enough time. Chapter three is on Avicenna, um, and what I think is so interesting and wonderful about this chapter is that this great philosopher, someone who's recognized as being a great philosopher, even if you know anyone and who wrote, in the, who's a Muslim philosopher, you, might, you know about Avicenna, and what does he do? He draws on Platonist assumptions. He draws on Aristotelian assumptions. And he, in some sense, makes them his own. So it's not like he's a second-rate philosopher because he's using these assumptions or some of these ideas. This is what philosophers do. Hegel, Leibniz, and so on, right? And then he offers, and I quote, an account of the nature of things. So what do we have here? He, this is a... This is a um, uh, an account of a sacred text. It's a reflection on the sacred text. So he takes this sacred text that's given, and then he offers a philosophical analysis of it. And in the end, you get an account of human nature. 
an account of human mind, an account of what there is in the world, an account of ultimate knowledge, right? So here we have a single text that is itself a reflection on a religious text that offers in, insights in philosophy. Um, another really good example from the, from the um, medieval tradition, if you don't know this, it's really interesting, the Song of Songs was a, was a text, from, you know, the biblical Song of Song, Songs was a text that was constantly uh, interpreted. And there's a huge, a lot of women, a lot of especially late medieval women talked about it because it was about love and it was comfortable for them to do so. But there's a lot of metaphysics, there's a lot of philosophy in your account of this biblical text. Finally, in, in really in conclusion, I want to turn to chapter five, which is the sheer accounts for a philosophical novel. Who knew? You know, I thought that there was some reason to believe that a novel did that novel didn't was that the genre, so to speak, wasn't invented for, for another couple hundred years. But I've learned now that in 12th century Spain, there's a novel with a primary character who is in some sense the agent intellect, the intellectus, as we, as we would say in Latin, who lives alone on a desert island, who may or may not have been born a woman, who discovers his own inherent nature and thereby his relation to divinity. But not only that, he discovers after some time that he is not a master and possessor of nature, but rather one in it and with it. That is, this novel leads us to an understanding of human nature, its relation to itself, how you know yourself, how you know God, how you know nature. And it is radically ecological, right? It's, you know, it's, it's very contemporary in this way. Now, uh, you know, I can't go into all the complicated details. Strange things happen in the end. Um, this, this, this character meets another human being and has to kind of understand that. But the point is, here is a novel that's written into the 12th century that itself defies, it has no arguments, it has no, none of, it's not a system, but it has profound answers to the most important and central questions. So my conclusion then to the importance of Open to Reason is that it gives a clear and subtle account of major figures and ideas in Islamic philosophy. And it gives us a clear way to reimagine philosophy's past. It shows us how trying to reimagine that past itself um, it, um, it encourages us to think about the canon, what a canon is differently, and to think about philosophy differently. And, and I look forward to actually more conversations about this over the years, and I look forward to, with Bashir, joining forces, and finally shaping philosophy and its relation to its past loose. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Suleiman Bashir Diyanya's Open to Reason, Muslim Philosophers in Conversation with the Western Tradition. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Anna Paulina Lee's Mandarin Brazil, Race, Representation, and Memory. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.